Hello, is okay, it's on, okay. Hey, good morning, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna do announcements today and I got a couple um, to give and I believe the first one is gonna pop up. I'm actually kind of excited about this one. Um, look at these handsome fellas, let's go. Um, these guys, um, they, I don't know if you guys noticed, but at night the church is lit up uh, by some Christmas lights. Um, and so these guys put those up, um, and they took the time to get up all the way up there to put those up. So um, just wanted to give them a little bit of a shout out. Um, Shane actually has um, became and volunteered to be like the lead of our maintenance team. Um, and it's just been so cool to have him. So want to give him a shout out. Um, he's made... Um, some really cool just adjustments and working on the fly and I really loved um, just chatting it up with him on phone calls, text messages and um, working with him has been really cool um, and he's put a lot of hours into it and so just yeah shout out just give him another round of applause dude that guy's been cool he's been cool um, if uh, I guess the next slide would be is if you're interested in joining Shane's maintenance team um, which is really cool um, there's a couple of ways to do that. Um, you can text building to our number, and then another way is to just reach out to Shane. Shane, you want to just raise your hand real quick? Yes, that's the guy. Yes, that's the, that's the guy we were clapping for. So, um, so yeah, I uh, wanted to give him a shout out. And if you're interested in uh, participating in that, um, doing a couple of different maintenance projects and special projects um, this year and going forward, um, those are a couple ways to reach out. And then the next slide is Outdoor Christmas. Yes, let's go. Um, it's actually going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be um, fire pits, hot cocoa, um, children's games. There's also going to be a photo booth. Um, there's going to be like a green screen in the background that you can do like gifts, boomerangs, like photos. So it's going to be a little Christmassy. It's going to be pretty cool. Um, and then there's going to be some um, caroling at the end. And, and from last year, I don't know if you guys were there last year, it was pretty epic. And um, I had a blast. And I would highly recommend to put this one on the calendar and be there for that. And then moving on, um, I think on the 19th, we will not have um, Sunday service. Um, but in lieu of, we'll have the outdoor Christmas. And then falling after that, is a couple of dates so the I think our first one is going to be back on the 9th is our next service so this is our last like in-house service until the 9th of January um, and so yeah next week outdoor Christmas and we're going to take a couple breaks off just so um, like worship team and all of our volunteers and everybody gets a break um, during these holiday um, season and just um, kind of rest and abide in that time too so that's something um, that we're doing. And then our last one, oh, December giving. That's not our last one. Um, December giving, um, there's going to be a little red basket out there um, for gift cards. Um, so if you have gift cards, you can come in. Um, there's a red basket out in the foyer. Um, and then, yeah, that's kind of like our December giving. So those are all the things. Huh? Oh, like Vision House and like Cedarway. Yeah. Oh, oh, sometimes, you know, no, they don't go, they don't go to me. Don't go to me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, 
Moving on, we got the Brookview uh, communication card, yay. Um, so if you want to communicate, such as joining teams like that, or you know, if you just like me getting put on the spot, you can just write in, um, you know. Yeah, the guy up there is a little embarrassing, so turn it red in the face. You can comment that on the card too, that's okay. Um, but yeah, any way to communicate, um, you can do it on the Brookview Church communication card. And that's all I have for you, um, so yeah, that's it. Anybody get a little snow at their house this morning? A little bit? No? Just a little, just a little light? Like Christmas is here? Yeah, good. Well, um, Jen and I, we, this, this year we had an especially cool Thanksgiving, so I just want to look back at that for a second. Jen's dad came down and spent the day with us, and we normally go up north to like Ferndale area and spend the time with huge extended family. COVID put kind of a, the kibosh on that this year. So Jen's dad came down and spent the day with us, and then Kate was home from college for a couple days, and then our boyfriend came over and hung out with our family. <laughs> and so Jen, the, the, the day was basically, Jen, Jen just, she just cooked and prepared in the kitchen, and she had many offers of help, but she had it under control, as she does. And so uh, we didn't want to like leave her isolated in the kitchen. And so we sat, if you know our house, some of you have been there, we have an area where people can kind of gather near the kitchen. And so we just sat far enough away to be out of her way, but made sure that she was able to kind of be part of all of our conversations. And a lot of that time was spent just asking Jen's dad about his many life experiences, like his childhood and his early 20s and the way that the world was back then and the crazy stuff that he did and remembers. And so Brooke and, and Kate and Jen and I and our boyfriend just uh, listened a lot. It, it was just mostly listening, but it was, it was interesting, super interesting and just really peaceful and, and a fantastic day. Now, it was also Jen's birthday. And so after dinner, uh, Cam, our son who lives in Haiti, zoomed in from Haiti, and all three kids, and um, Jen's dad and Keller and I, celebrated Jen. And we sort of have this family tradition of on somebody's birthday, just gathering around them and everybody kind of from the heart, saying something that they really value or appreciate or admire about the person or you know what's special. And you guys, I was so blown away at how really, deep and articulate the kids were. Um, now, we've been doing this basically since they can talk, you know, so, so they're getting pretty good at it. Um, but it was really, really cool for their, their ability to just identify what is special about their mom and then be able to articulate that really beautifully. It was just a fantastic day. It was a day of peace in a world where peace has been so hard to find, has it not? So as Jen's dad talked that afternoon in the kitchen, we were just reflecting on the world. 
and just got to talking about our generation and my generation. Um, that as an American, we, we haven't had, up until COVID, had to face all that much. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of war. There was 9-11, of course, um, and then there's been ongoing stuff in the Middle East, but other generations have had to face far more intense stuff. Like, if you think about this, if you were 20 years old in 1915, okay, if you were 20 years old in 1915, you would have faced World War I, and then right out of that, the Great Depression, and then right out of that, World War II. Like, can you imagine walking through a new crisis like on that level every decade? Like World War I in your 20s, the Great Depression in your 30s, and then World War II in your 40s. I mean, those were some tough, hardened people, were they not? Just like overcomers. So I was thinking about this past season and, and all that's come with it. Because in my lifetime, it is the most traumatic thing for our society that I can remember by far. And here's part of what's made it so dang painful. Even in the world wars and in the depression, life was crazy hard, but in some ways, it brought people together, right? It brought our nation together. It brought neighborhoods together, families together. This last season has been the polar opposite of that. It's, it's division, it's factions, it's tribes, it's people like eager to criticize and villainize and just berate each other, which is all tacked on to the loss, some level of loss that we're all feeling, and then this overwhelming uncertainty about what happens next. Like this season, when you think about it, has been the closest thing to war that many of us have and hopefully ever will experience, God willing. So between loss and conflict and, and the lurking fear of the unknown, like peace, like a soul at rest, may be what is most needed at Christmas. And if we follow Jesus, then our king is the prince of peace. Christmas is what the ancients called Advent, a Latin word meaning to come. In Jesus, God has come to us, and we, and we also look forward to his coming again. In Jesus, God began something, and yet it's, it's not complete. We talked last week about hope, but Jesus also came to bring peace. In Hebrew, peace is the word, what? Shalom. Is it up on the screen or did you know that? <laughs> shalom. And shalom is just this beautiful picture. The idea of shalom is actually very deep and very broad. It, it includes the absence of conflict or the absence of war, but it's so much more than that. It is like complete justice and, and wholeness and just well-being. Jewish people still greet each other saying shalom, which is kind of like a one-word prayer that is expressing, you know, may God grant you complete wholeness. How beautiful is that? Shalom is the place where all relationships with self, with others, with God, with creation are well-ordered and defined by harmony and dignity and honor for all. And so I don't, I don't know about you in this season, like my soul longs for shalom. Now the people of Israel for generation after generation longed for shalom and God promised them that it would be coming. And so what I want to do is read Isaiah 9, verses 2 to 7 together. And we read part of this last week, but I want to look at it in its fuller context and just 
try to visualize what this, what this promise is, is um, saying. Okay, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel in the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So more than 700 years before the birth of Jesus, God made a promise. For Israel, this promise was set against the familiar backdrop of war and loss and political darkness that that goes to places that we can hardly imagine. These were people that had felt the effects of war and they knew oppression and they knew failed governments. By the time of Jesus, okay, 700 years later, it was like, for the Jewish people, it was like same feeling, new oppressor, right, Rome. And the people were crying out for the one from Isaiah, from the promise in Isaiah to come, the prince that would usher in shalom that would last forever. It caused them to ask how and when and who. What kind of man, what kind of king might this be, this prince of peace, this prince of shalom? In verses 6 and 7, we read that this Messiah would be born into humanity and that he would establish a new government, like a new way of living, and he would be a wonderful counselor providing insight for all, that he would be mighty God, that he would be the Lord Almighty with his people, that he would be an everlasting father, the prince of peace, of shalom, ensuring for his people the blessing of peace forever. In this king, God would establish a new kingdom, a new government, a new way of life that would ensure security and wholeness for all. And 700 years after this promise came, a rabbi from Nazareth. And he taught people a new way to be human. He taught the way to shalom. He taught that the only way would come through love and through forgiveness. Without love expressed in forgiveness, there simply cannot be shalom. Without the forgiveness of God, we will never know peace. But also, it will require that we find a way to forgive one another. And so today, as we think about our longing for peace, for shalom, let's think about how important forgiveness is and how important forgiveness was to Jesus. And I want to begin in Matthew chapter 18. This is a very famous passage, but it says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. A little bit of backstory. Uh, In the first century, uh, it was a common rabbinic teaching 
that you are to forgive your brother or your sister, and notice that language, meaning a fellow, this is to Jewish people regarding other Jewish people, okay? Uh, meaning a fellow Jew. You were to forgive them up to seven times. So there's a limit. Like the idea is you're not a doormat. Don't let people walk all over you forever. After about seven times of forgiving, you're done. And I'm, I'm reading between the lines here, but it seems as though Peter's been following Rabbi Jesus around for a while, and he's been watching, and he is beginning to suspect that Jesus might not be on board with this seven-time limit. So he asked the question. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And some translations and manuscripts say 70 times seven. Which, math, math majors, what is that? 490. Okay, 490. So there it is. Now this, now, now, this is teacher Jesus using hyperbole, right? He, okay, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, so keep an Excel spreadsheet on your laptop, right? And when they get to 490, then you're off the hook, right? You can just be like, listen, spouse, that's 491, I'm out of here. Right? It's, it's, it's more like Jesus is, is escalating this number to something absurd, as if Jesus' end goal for his apprentices, not just for Peter, but for you and me, is to grow and mature into the kind of people who are just forgiving by nature, without limit. But can we be honest, when we read this, at least when I read this, my inner lawyer starts to go off. It's like, wait, objection? Right? Like, but Jesus, you don't, you don't know my pain. But you don't know this scenario. You, you don't know that scenario. Jesus, you, you don't understand. And because Jesus is like the most brilliant teacher to ever live, he does what a really good teacher does, and he anticipates our objection. He sees it coming a mile away, and he tells a story. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Okay, now that phrase, 10,000 bags of gold, in Greek, it's 10,000 talents, which was a ridiculous amount. It is just an absurd sum. Like somewhere in the range in our modern day, if we were to put this into modern economic terms, it'd be like a trillion dollars. Okay, so the point is, this amount could never be paid back. Since he was not able to pay, verse 25, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So that's how debts were handled in the ancient world, slavery. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Now this kind of gets lost in translation and cultural differences, but you guys, this is Jesus being funny. This man could never possibly pay back a trillion dollars. Okay, this guy's like a, a middle manager at a, you know, a startup tech company. His, his audience would, would be, you know, would hear Jesus say this, and his audience would be like, oh, Jesus, that's hilarious. Isn't that how you felt? <laughs> so this guy is making an absurd request. But even so, verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled or forgave the debt, and let him go. 
Jesus continues. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, like three months' wages. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Same language, yet this is an amount that could actually reasonably be repaid. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. A trillion dollars. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you for a few thousand bucks? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And Jesus' disciples would be going, well, of course. That makes sense. But listen to the final stinging line of this teaching. Jesus says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Like, be honest for a second, just quietly to yourself. What is your emotional response to that? To me, it feels just a wee bit abrasive. Uh, and it raises all kinds of questions, theological questions. Like, wait, what? God, I, I thought your love and your grace were a free gift to me. Not dependent upon me doing everything right. Forgiving everyone that wrongs me requires a, a maturity that's far beyond what I'm even capable of doing. This will take a, a level of apprenticeship to Jesus that I have yet to reach. So, so what does this mean? God, does this mean that, that you and I are not okay? Does it, does it mean that I'm not forgiven? Does it mean that my salvation is in question? That my eternal destiny is not secured? What, what are you saying, Jesus? Now, there is no doubt, I think, about the ultimate point here, which is if you have been forgiven a debt so big you could never possibly pay it, shouldn't you then be eager to extend forgiveness to those around you? But the way that Jesus says it, it sounds stronger than that, right? Well, I, I like the way that um, theologian and pastor John MacArthur explains this. And if you know me, uh, you know that I don't quote John MacArthur very often. Uh, he and I see things very differently on, on a whole lot of levels. Um, but I agree with him on this. Here's what he writes. He writes this. He says, Jesus is not speaking here of the forgiveness that brings salvation, saying that God only forgives those who are forgiving. That would be works-based righteousness. He's saying those who are saved and transformed and given a new nature in Christ and have the indwelling Holy Spirit generally will manifest that changed life by having a forgiving attitude. Christians are to be marked as forgiving people because they have been forgiven as no others on earth. When they are not forgiving, they are living in opposition to their new nature in Christ. So if the massive forgiveness of God toward us does not somehow free us to become gracious, then I think that we should reasonably question whether or not we've experienced God's love and grace at all. We are to learn to forgive as we have been forgiven. 
And, and this is the key. Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he's not already done himself. I want to look at another very famous passage in Luke 23 for a second. Okay, it says, this is the, the scene of the crucifixion. It says, two other men, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. Now, was Jesus a criminal? No. Jesus is an innocent victim. They, exec- they, he, they, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And so Jesus said, Father, strike them down because they know exactly what they're doing. No, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. So feel the full weight and gravity of the story. Here is Jesus. He's dying on the cross, an innocent victim, carrying the full weight of injustice on his shoulders for you and me and the entire world. At his feet are men who are not only not sorry for killing him, but they're making his torture and death, they're making a game, a little game out of his torture and his death. They're making it a fun little game. And the last words out of his mouth toward them are, Father, forgive them because they have no clue what they are really doing. The idea here from Luke, and this is beautiful. The idea here from Luke is, listen, if Jesus is willing to forgive the very men who were killing him, how much more willing is he to forgive you and me? I'm like, do you ever get this sense that like just, or or the wonder of, does Jesus really love me? I mean, with all that I've done and all that I am and all all of my failings and all of, with all of it? Well, this is Luke's emphatic answer to that. Luke says, this is what Jesus is like. And by default, this is what God is like. So when you and I are commanded by Jesus to follow his example and forgive, it's rooted in the very essence of Jesus. Like, this is the king. This is the kingdom. And this is how we participate. I want to look at one more passage of scripture. This is Ephesians chapter 4. Because this idea of forgiveness and grace, it just runs all through the New Testament. Now, if you've never read Ephesians, it was a first century letter written by the Apostle Paul to believers in the city of Ephesus. And the first three chapters are about kind of what Christ has done for us, what he has done for you and me in the past. And then Paul shifts gears, and in chapter 4, we're, he, he, he focuses in on what we are to do in the present and the future. Okay, so let's pick this up in chapter 4, verse 30. Paul writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Well, how would we grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Verse 31, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, I kind of like the command against brawling because I don't struggle with that as much. It, it's, you guys, it's been a few years since I was in a really good bar fight. <laughs> but but, but Paul, Paul says, get rid of all bitterness. Oh. Get rid of all anger, slander. Oh, man, that stuff's in me. Right, that stuff is really in me. Paul continues, 
Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, here's what I've observed about forgiveness. We like it a lot more as a general concept than as a specific practice. Amen? I mean, we, we all agree that forgiveness is really good for humanity. But when it comes time to actually forgive something, an actual hurt from an actual person in our actual life, we're not, we're not quite as excited about the idea. Now, part of that is that forgiveness does not come naturally to us. There, there's a part of us that really enjoys feeding our grudges. When people hurt us, our grudges kind of give us a sense of, of power. It's like we have something on them. It's like we, we have something that we're holding over them. Grudges make us feel like we're good and they're bad. And our grudges can actually work to, to give us and, and feed this sense of superiority over other people. When we're ruled by what Paul calls the flesh, forgiveness looks really unappealing. So we resist it. But that is not the only reason we struggle to forgive. I I think that sometimes we we make forgiveness something that it isn't, and we make it so big that it becomes unreasonable, and then we find ourselves unable to do it. Like sometimes our problem is simply confusion about what forgiveness is. So it can be really helpful to clarify what forgiveness is and what it's not. So let me just share with you three things that forgiveness is not, okay? First, it is not forgetting. Like, we've all heard the saying, right? Like, forgive and forget. Just get over it. Just move past it. Just let it go. Just forget it. But can we be serious? Have you ever been, like, seriously wounded? You, you can't just forget it. You don't just get over it. This doesn't make, make us an, an unloving person. It makes us human, We've been created as beings who remember. God implores his people constantly all through the scriptures. Remember, remember, remember. From the Old Testament to the New, we are called to remember. This is the reality that we live in. We, we have access to our memories. We're not computers. You can't just go in and delete certain files. So if we equate forgiving with forgetting, then we can start to feel stuck. Because if we're unable to forget, then we think, well, I guess I'm not able to forgive. But often, remembering is a necessary part of the path toward forgiveness. There are many things that that we we forgive, and then we eventually do go on and forget. And that's really good. And if we can do that, we should. Uh, If we can forgive them and forget them, we should do that. But there are other things. There are deeper things that we will never forget. It doesn't mean that we can't engage in the process of forgiveness. Okay, so forgiveness is not the same thing as forgetting. Also, forgiveness is not the same thing as excusing. There are times where we can legitimately excuse somebody's behavior, right? Like, excusing is when we consider extenuating circumstances. And, like, and then we, so like we, we excuse expectant dads for driving recklessly because they're driving a woman in labor. Right? Or maybe you excuse, like you excuse a clumsy snowboarder that keeps bumping into you because they're five years old and they're just learning, <laughs> right? And it's their first day. Yeah, you don't have to punch that kid out. 
And, and, and of course, it's good to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? That's good. Like, whenever we can excuse people, give them the benefit of the doubt. We should. I mean, far too often, we're way too quick to judge. But forgiveness is not the same thing as excusing. Forgiveness is what's required when there's just no good rationale to explain away why somebody did what they did. You guys, if an action is excusable, then it doesn't need to be forgiven. Third, forgiveness is not always allowing a toxic person back into your life. When moving forward with people that have caused us great pain, we have to be wise about how or whether we allow them back into our life in a similar kind of relationship or role. Of course, as disciples of Jesus, we work to live at peace with all people, right? We, we always work toward, recon- toward relational reconciliation wherever we can. But, but in a broken relationship, and in a broken relationship, forgiveness will always be necessary. It will always be the repairing agent. But it does not obligate us to reconcile with that person. People sometimes think that forgiving means we reunite no matter what. That a, that a wife must move back in with the man who beats her. Or a businessman must take back the dishonest partner who's been ripping him off as, as many times as that guy wants to be taken back. You guys, that's insane. And that's stupid. Like if you have a friend that tells everyone your secrets, you can forgive her without continuing to share with her your secrets. You can forgive your ex for cheating on you, but you don't have to start dating the person again. It's, it's, it's a healthy Christ-like response to set boundaries and then to live within those parameters. So if forgiveness then is, is not the same as forgetting and it's not excusing and it's not allowing a toxic person back into your life, what is forgiveness? When Jesus says, you must forgive one another from the heart, what, what, what exactly does that entail? Well, it's a pretty simple process, really. Let me just walk through this quickly. First, forgiveness is letting go of our right to hurt back. The first stage of forgiveness is, is a decision to not try to inflict a reciprocal amount of pain on someone who has caused hurt. If I forgive you, then what I do is I give up the right to hurt you back. Even though you may hurt me deliberately, you may hurt me personally and deeply, I refrain from the instinctive response of retaliation. I don't act on or indulge my desire to see you suffer in some way. Forgiveness begins when we give up the quest to get even. Now, this is really hard because getting even is natural. Watch two little kids. Watch two little kids in the nursery. You know, one, one kid pops another kid on the shoulder and takes their toy. What does the other kid do? Depends on the nature of the kid. Some kids cry and other kids punch back, right? I'm like, but this is, is so natural. Human nature, the flesh, will always want to return pain for pain. But returning pain for pain just fills the world with more pain. And the biggest problem with getting even is that no two people weigh pain on the same scale. Like, when are we even? Right? Will the Palestinians ever feel like they're even with the Israelis? Will the Bloods ever get even with the Crips on the streets of L.A.? Never. They, they could go on killing each other until they're all dead, but they will never feel like they're even. 
Forgiving begins when we stop trying to get even. Of course, letting go of vengeance does not mean that we're letting go of justice. Justice must still be honored. Justice is about accountability. Like a rapist may be forgiven by his victim, but he still needs to pay his debt to society. If someone commits a criminal act against you, you can forgive while they pay their legal debt. Forgiveness is not incompatible with the legal process, which is about justice. Justice is about accountability and fairness to society, and it's necessary. Forgiveness is about letting go of vengeance, which is insatiable. Forgiveness is letting go of of returning pain for pain. So the first step of forgiveness is letting go of the right that we feel to hurt someone back. And this is a foundational step, but it's only part of it. Next. Forgiveness is wishing the other person well. Once we let go of the right to hurt back or cause pain, the next stage of forgiveness involves a new way of seeing and feeling. And one thing that happens when we get hurt deeply is that when we look at the one who hurt us, we we don't see a person anymore. Only the hurt. When someone wounds us, we forget to see him or her as a human being, someone who is just like we are, remembering that they too, just like us, are a mixed bag, a mixture of, of wonder and of waywardness. They are a mixture of beauty and of sin. And, and when we forgive each other, we begin to see each other more clearly. We don't ignore the hurts, but we begin to be able to see beyond them. And so the more advanced stage of forgiveness is, is seeing them differently. It's, it's where you begin to like wish them well, where you, you want good things for them. Now, I want to say a word about this because we can, this, this can feel almost impossible, right? Like what kind of good things should we be wishing for? Well, what does it really mean to wish somebody like well? Does it mean that we wish the arrogant more success so they get more arrogant? Or or that we wish that a mean person suffers no relational consequences for their meanness and then they just never overcome being mean? If we think of wishing them well as wishing for these kinds of things, it makes makes sense that we would be like really resistant to it and it it would begin to feel impossible to us. But, but if wishing them well is wishing them shalom, like a kind of wholeness and, and healing inside and all around, then that might look different. Um, I played uh, college baseball for a, a man, a coach, that scared me to death. I know some of you are like, you were scared to death of a man? Yes, <laughs> I was. Uh, he was crass, he was mean, and he was just generally scary. I mean, he was rude, critical. His wife, on the other hand, was this sweetest little Christ-following woman. And her name was Pat. And, and, and Pat was a huge part of my journey, actually, in coming to Jesus, which is a whole other story that I won't get into. But her husband, Bob, um, was the baseball coach. He was terrifying. Now, in all fairness to Bob, he did have some good qualities, okay? He was a mixed bag. He could be nice in spurts. He, he was loyal to his wife and, and to lots of different people. He had integrity, um, and at times he could be very generous. But often, you guys, he was just grumpy, bitter, cold, and mean. And more than anything, Pat 
wanted a husband who would know Jesus with her. But Bob made it clear that that whole thing, Jesus and, and the church and that whole part of life was something that Pat was going to need to do on her own. Okay, And it went on that way year after year after year after year. And I played baseball there and I experienced that and I watched the dynamic and then I left and many years later, something crazy happened. I heard that somehow Bob came to Jesus and it changed everything. I, and I don't know why or how, but, but he started going to, wife, to, to church with his wife. And it wasn't just like that he attended, but like, and, and then like his heart wasn't really into it. Um, I, I, people people that, were, that lived over there, this was in Yakima, they were like, he had a total heart change. They're like, you wouldn't believe it. So much so that serving in ministry alongside his wife became his, his biggest joy. Like he would stand with her in church. It's a vineyard church, very charismatic. And, and, and he would stand in there with hands raised, just pouring his heart out. I'm like, Coach Bob? <laughs> I, I, and, but, but more than any of that stuff, what was really cool was I, I'm told that there was just a simple sweetness about him. And he died a man who had learned to love Jesus. He'd learned to let go of bitterness and anger and coldness and hatred and all of that, and he just learned to live in joy. Now, in wishing my former coach well, what more could I have possibly wished? When, when God invites us to wish people well, we need a realistic picture of what we are to wish for. And I think the best picture is simply shalom. God does amazing stuff in the inner life of people all the time. And to me, this is way more important than wishing people that have hurt us like financial prosperity and fame and success and physical health and good looks and a really attractive mate and all of that. Now, those aren't bad things. It's okay to wish those things if you have it in you. Um, but we can actually wish for something deeper. And I find that the deeper things are much easier to wish for. Several years ago, I, I read a book called Letters from a Skeptic. Anybody read that? Yeah, I loved it. And what it is, is it's real letters that were written back and forth between like a pastor, a pastor slash theologian and his dad. And his dad was not a Christian and he's, he's quite opposed to it all. But they had this correspondence of letters over many years. And the dad raises all of his various objections to Christianity. And then the son very sweetly and, uh, addresses them. And so after a long correspondence, the dad became a follower of Jesus at 73 years old. And the letters they wrote back and forth were then eventually published. And at the very end, the son included an epilogue about his, his dad. And I, I want to read a chunk of this to you because I, I think that this description is just such a breathtaking picture of shalom in somebody's life. The son writes this. He says, while I was overwhelmed with joy by my father's decision to accept Christ, I wasn't very optimistic about how much transformation would take place in his post-conversion life. At 73 years old, my father was much older than most people who come to Christ. Plus, he had always been very set in his ways. Anybody know anybody like that? He says, my pessimism couldn't have been more misplaced. Indeed, it's difficult to exaggerate the profundity of the Holy Spirit's transformation of my father during the last 11 years of his life. 
One dramatic change was in my father's emotional tenderness. The pre-Christian Ed Boyd rarely expressed his emotions, certainly not in public. But the Christian Ed Boyd became a man who wore his heart on his sleeve. My father literally wept for joy every time he heard of a person coming to Christ through our correspondence. And over the course of 11 years, he heard this hundreds of times. My father's faith was marked by another dramatic change. From our correspondence, it was clear faith didn't come easy for Ed. Though he became thoroughly convinced of the truth of the gospel, I anticipated continually helping this incurable rationalist remain stable in the faith. This was not the case. Almost immediately after his conversion, my father seemed to rest in a profound and beautiful childlike faith. Once, while visiting my father in a hospital after a third stroke left him nearly paralyzed, I told him I wanted to commission him for the most important task I could ever give someone. Since he was clearly going to have a lot of time on his hands as he recovered, I asked him to be my personal full-time prayer warrior. I explained that throughout each and every day, he would need to pray for me, my family, and my ministry. To my surprise, Dad hesitated for a moment with a concerned look on his face. Then in his very stroke-impaired speech, he asked me, do prayers that I think work as well, as well as prayers that I vocalize? It's a lot of work for me to say much of anything these days. He says, I choked up at the recognition that this once arrogant intellectual giant was expressing such simple questions about God. I assured him that God knew his thoughts without him saying them out loud. He gave me a crooked smile as he muttered, Okay then, boy, I'm your guy. The most profound change in dad's post-conversion life was his general disposition. The pre-Christian Ed Boyd was usually contentious and ill-tempered. More often than not, he was angry about something and very vocal about it. Soon after his surrender to Christ, Ed Boyd acquired a profound peace, a pervasive sweetness, and most remarkably, an amazing sense of gratitude I never saw prior to his conversion. What made his transformation more remarkable was that soon after he committed his life to Christ, my father was given more reasons to complain, to complain than he had ever dreamed. One year after his conversion, my father suffered the first of several debilitating strokes. Over the years, he lost most of his physical abilities and verbal skills. Eventually, this once fiercely independent man was unable to care for himself and was confined to a wheelchair. By the age of 80, he was almost completely blind and deaf. The pre-Christian Ed Boyd would have been positively miserable, yet the Christian Ed Boyd rarely complained. While it sounds odd, the worse things got for my father, the more grateful he became. Before his final stroke left him in a coma, I was with my father when he began to weep for no apparent reason. His response floored me. Oh, shout, oh, so for no apparent reason, shouting into his hearing aid, I requested an explanation for his tears. His response floored me. Sitting in his wheelchair, wearing diapers, Unable to do anything but, but the most elementary task for himself, nearly totally blind and deaf, this once malcontented man said in his stroke-impaired speech, because I feel so blessed by God just to be here. I embraced him tightly for a long moment as we both wept. 
As a witness to the unfathomable love and power of God, this man was definitely not the same father I grew up with. When we wish people well, what are we supposed to be wishing for? Well, we can wish them health and wealth and success. But more than that, you guys, we can wish them a kind of shalom. Peace in their inner life. And I find that, that wishing sh shalom is actually far more doable for me. And when I think of Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I, I'm reading between the lines again a bit, but, but I sort of read it this way. It's like Jesus is saying, Father, do not define them by this moment of their lives. Even, even those men who are, who are behaving wickedly right now, Father, with the Holy Spirit in their life, they can become something new. They can become something beautiful. So, Father, don't give up on them. And when Jesus tells us, implores us to pray for our enemies, this is the kind of thing that I envision. And that just leads me to one final thing. And it's this, forgiveness is the only way to truly, uh, to live truly free. Forgiveness is the only way to live truly free. We are always to pursue forgiving people who have hurt us, even when the offenders don't ask for it or deserve it. Right? God, God wants us to forgive because forgiveness is the best way to live. He commands it because the only other way is to remain a prisoner of the hurt. God, God commands forgiving because to refuse to forgive means I allow the one who hurt me to keep me chained inside a, a prison of bitterness and resentment. You guys, no human beings are more miserable than the unforgiving. Now, in, in the best case scenario, forgiveness leads to the healing of a broken relationship, and we've seen that. It leads to the reestablishment of community. But this Reconciliation is a dance that requires full cooperation of both partners. In many cases, like our forgiveness will not result in reconciliation. But here's the thing. It's still worth it. Jesus said the, the unforgiving employee ended up in prison. And I think, spiritually speaking, that's the only thing that can happen. Unforgiveness is itself a prison of sorts. Like bitterness and coldness of heart are far stronger than any iron bars. Anne Lamott wrote one time, she said, I, I went around saying for a long time that I am not one of the Christians who's heavily into forgiveness, that I'm one of the other kind. But even though that was funny and actually true, it started to be too painful to stay this way. In fact, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. I can cling to bitterness because I want to hurt the rat that caused my pain, but after resentment and bitterness have festered long enough, I find out that the rat is me after all. Don't forgive and your anger will become your burden. Don't forgive and bit by bit, joy will be choked out of you. Don't forgive and you will be, become unable to trust people. Don't forgive and bitterness will crowd out 
the compassion in your heart. Don't forgive and that little grudge you nurse will grow larger and stronger. And although you think you may be hiding it from everyone you know, in time, it will become a monster and it will kill something in you. Where there once was a person will remain just bitterness and just hate. Because every day we have to choose. And, and our choices, they, they form us. Every day, each of us must choose. It's, is it vengeance or mercy? Is it hatred or grace? Is it prison or freedom? Is it, is it life or death? And because he loves us, Jesus is imploring us, choose wisely. On your seat this morning, many of you noticed there was a rock. And I just want to ask you right now to grab it and hold it in your hand. And as you hold it, just feel the weight of it in your hands. Some of you are like, the person next to me has a bigger rock. (laughs) Hey, don't get rock envy. Just close your eyes, hold your rock, be content with it. Um, And feel the weight of it. And as, as you do that, I want to invite the worship team to make their way up. But with your eyes closed, just feel the weight of that rock and let, let it represent a grudge that you hold against someone. Now, grudges are, are like little weights that we carry. And as we add more, life starts to feel heavier and heavier. And we get weighed down by them. So I want to invite you to think of a specific grudge that you hold, a specific grudge against a specific person. Could be somebody from your your everyday world right now. Could be your spouse, your child, your parent, your roommate, maybe a coworker or your boss or a coach. Could be someone from your past that isn't even in your life really anymore. But somebody that hurt you and caused pain that you have carried for a long time. But let that rock represent a specific grudge for a specific person. And as we work through the closing worship set, I just, I just want to invite you to let go, to ask God to help you let go, to forgive as you have been forgiven. So you can think of that person in that situation, that grudge, and maybe just kind of pray, Father, help me to let go of my bitterness toward this person. Help me to let go of any right I feel to hurt them back. Help me to begin wishing them well to want your very best for them, shalom for them. Father, help me find freedom from my anger and bitterness toward this person. Father, help me forgive the way you've forgiven me. And then I want to invite you to take a small symbolic action. Okay, so you can open your eyes. As we worship, if, if it makes sense to you, I just want to invite you to take your rock, okay, your grudge, and like lay it, at the altar of God, like give it over to God. Um, let him take it from you. And the way that you would do that is just as, as we're worshiping, I just invite you to come up and drop your rock in the bucket, which I'm going to set right down here on the front of the stage. And it, it just a, a small symbolic act that says, God, I want to let this go. Help me. All right, let's worship together.